There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, Episode 76. In this episode, we'll discuss the topic of the ASX. What is it? And what is an index tracker like the ASX 200? Then go on to the main topic of what are corporate actions? You might have actually benefited from corporate actions before with your portfolio and might not even know about it. And there's been a lot of corporate action news, uh, particularly in the last two or three weeks. So I thought that'd be an opportune time to learn about corporate actions and how it can actually benefit investors And in some cases, it can impede investors as well. Now, for those of you that are new to the channel, remember, the aim of this channel is to educate, empower, and entertain. Now, just a slight disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to this episode you want to make to your appropriate advisors to make sure that it is appropriate for your personalized financial situation. Now, if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to investing, saving, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and just set it aside. That is your money. You work so hard for your money, it's important that you get paid for it. Step two, invest that money. Ideally, something that you understand in or want to understand in. I just invest in index funds. Step three, reinvest those dividends. Make sure that the power of compounding works in your favor because the power is absolutely phenomenal once you understand it. Step four, do it for the long term. I'm not talking five, 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, ideally 40 plus years. Step five, my favorite, is to automate. Automating the investment forever. Make sure that 20% goes into the investments automatically. Have a system set up so you can set and forget and not have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. If you automate it, you're far less likely to make mistakes in your investing. And more importantly, you're far less likely to be tempted to spend that money which means it's going to keep happening forever. Now, if you did that, you're likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just the tool. It doesn't bring you happiness, but you can use it as a tool to make your life better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you better. In this episode, the main topic will be what are corporation actions. But as usual, before we get to the main topic, I got a question from a non-Facebook person. They wanted me to nickname them, so I thought I'd call them ASXQ because their question refers specifically to the ASX 200 itself. And here it is. What are the determining factors that allow companies to be listed in the ASX 200? Now, before we go on to that specific question, 
we need to learn about the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange. So, what is the ASX? It is actually a publicly listed company. It's a financial marketplace. The products it exchanges are stocks, fixed income securities, commodities, energy, and much more. The combined market capitalization of all of the companies in the ASX is more than $2 trillion, and it has more than 2,000 companies listed on the ASX, making it in the top 10 exchanges in the world. It advocates for corporate regulation, but remember, ASIC actually governs this space, so ASX doesn't actually make up any rules about it, but it advocates for those rules, and the ASIC supervises the ASX's compliance just like any other company. The RBA oversees the ASX's system for financial stability. It also provides data to major financial institutions in Australia, but also to the world. But it's not owned or operated by the government. Nothing to do with it. But it does provide advice to government regulatory bodies. A lot of people think the ASX is operated by the government agencies. It's not. It's a privately run company and it's publicly listed. And their customers are generally the people that list with them. To use an example, think about it like a shopping centre. The ASX represents the shopping centre. They own and operate it, allow businesses to have stores within it. They set the rent, they set the regulation, they set the rules, and they set the guidelines for the businesses to follow. The customers are either brokers, financial institutions, corporate customers, or individuals who enter the shopping centre have a look at the variety of businesses available to interact with. That interaction is purchasing or selling a piece of their business. This is called trading in the financial world. Just like any shopping centre, they have opening and closing hours. So the ASX is open daily from 10am to 4pm on weekdays and are closed for national public holidays and also closed for weekends. So the ASX facilitates the trading transactions. That's all they do. Now, here are the stats, which is pretty incredible given our population in Australia is only 25 million. Number one, we are the number five in terms of world's leading financial systems out of 57 countries. We are the eighth largest equity market in the world. We are the second largest equity market in Asia Pacific. Largest is Japan and India will soon overtake Australia if not already. We are the third largest debt market in Asia Pacific. And in terms of Forex trading, we are the fifth most traded currency in the world. That is the Australian dollar. So what is the ASX 200 then? Well, the ASX 200 or the S&P ASX 200 stands for Standard & Poor's, the S&P bit of it. And the ASX 200 tracks the largest 200 companies in the Australian Stock Exchange. Essentially, it's called a tracker or an index. It's the benchmark in Australia, along with the All Ordinaries Index, which lists about 500 biggest companies in Australia. The ASX 200 was created in the year 2000, and that started off at about 3,000 points. And All Ordinaries was created in 1980, and it started off at 500 points. And in terms of The ASX 200 representing the largest companies or the largest 200 companies in Australia, it just means largest by market capitalization, which is essentially the total dollar market value of a company. So I guess, how does a company get qualified 
to be listed in the ASX 200. Now, to understand this, we need to understand the guidelines and the rules, regulations the ASX sets out in order to set a company listed on their stock exchange in the first place. Remember, you won't be listed in the ASX 200 if you're actually not listed in the ASX itself. Therefore, I think it's useful to think about the ASX 200 as the creme de la creme of all of the Australian companies, the top 200 companies in Australia, or the largest. Now, let's talk a little bit about getting listed in the ASX itself, because I think that's relevant. To get listed on the ASX, first of all, you need to meet the following basic criteria. Number one, you must have a number of shareholders, and that is 300 investors at least, at about $2,000 each as a minimum. Number two, you must have 20% of your company to be floated on the ASX. Number three, the company size has to be a certain amount. Now, there are two options in terms of looking at how big a company is, and the ASX sets out these guidelines. The first option is the profit test, which basically means over the last three years, your company must have made a million dollars in profit, that's in aggregate, or it must have made at least $500,000 of profit in the last 12 months. Now, aggregated profits just means over the last three years and doesn't have to account for inflation or taxation. There is another way that you can, you know, size up a company, and that is the assets test. The assets test just means the net tangible assets must be $4 million or more. That is, the physical property of the company, the plant and equipment, are called tangible assets, whereas the trademarks and patents and goodwill are called intangible assets. So the net tangible assets is the difference between the two minus all of the liabilities. That must be about $4 million. Or the other way is that your company must have a market capitalization of at least $15 million. Now, if you're an Australian company, you need to abide by these rules. If you're a foreign company, you must also qualify and abide by the local guidelines set out by the ASX to get qualified to be listed in the ASX, first of all. Now, part of the acceptance into the ASX also means ongoing financial reports to be disclosed to the ASX and also independent auditing tests. So that's how you get listed in the ASX. That is your entry point. That is your gateway. How does a company then get accepted into the ASX 200 quote-unquote elite companies? Well, first of all, the company must be listed in the ASX. Second of all, the company stock must be available to be easily traded, and that's called liquidity. Now, that liquidity must not come from a small group of investors. It has to come from a diverse group of investors. So if you think about liquidity, it's about the number of trades, the availability to buy and sell that particular company's stock. The higher the liquidity, the more availability and the more trading for that particular company. So the liquidity of that particular stock must be relatively high. And that liquid, liquidity must come from various investors and can't come from one or two investors, for example. Now, the market capitalization, that is one of the ways that the ASX 200 lists um, its um, list of companies in the, you know, the, the way to get accepted into that top 200 company list is that the market cap must be one of the 200 
biggest companies in Australia. And of course, the ASX 200 is rebalanced every quarter. So it is quite possible that your company, if it loses a lot of value compared to other companies in the index, you might actually fall out of that 200 company list, essentially. So that rebalancing happens every quarter. Now, there are different indices. The ASX 200 is just one of the indices. You can get ASX 20, you can get ASX 50, you can get ASX 100. It's just that the more companies that are listed in the index, it's more representative of the entire stock market. Okay? The All Ordinaries is also another index, and that has the biggest 500 companies in Australia, and it only focuses on market capitalization as a requirement and does not focus the stocks to have a certain amount of liquidity. So it's slightly different. So in other words, it's not required to be traded at a certain volume and the frequency by the wide array of investors. So the All Ordinaries is all about how big a company is, whereas the ASX 200 is about how big a company is, but also how much liquidity that company stock is actually provided. So I guess now we know how to get listed in the ASX, how to get listed in the ASX 200. What is the ASX 200 actually made of? Well, it's made of the top 200 companies, as I spoke before, according to the market cap. And it turns out it's also made up of companies in all sectors of the economy. This is why the ASX 200 is kind of like a proxy for the representation of companies that sum up the economy. So it's kind of a proxy to the economy. It's kind of a gateway to the economy. Now, this is also true for the American index, which is S&P 500 index, which is the top 500 companies of the United States. So if you're an overseas listener, have a look at the indices in your country and see how they work. It's a good time to learn about this stuff, given we are constantly being bombarded with the stock market information and economic news in this COVID time. So now is the time to understand how the stock market works, how the ASX works, or your local index works, and how the ASX 200 works. Now, the rules applying for the ASX 200 may not apply for the S&P 500. So you've got to look at your local guidelines in your own country. So that's important distinction. So the ASX 200, here is the sectors that it involves and the representative of that sectors. Financials, 26.5%. Materials, 18.11%. Healthcare, 14%. Industrials, 7.9%. Consumer staples, 6.85%. Consumer discretionaries, 6.3%. Real estate, 6.2%. Energy, only 3.89%, which I found quite surprising. IT, 2.89%. Telecom and other sectors, 8%. Um, so that's sort of, you know, miscellaneous group. So you can imagine the, I guess, one of the problems of the ASX 200 is that it's heavily weighted towards financials and materials and mining stocks. So both of them combined is about 40%. Um, whereas if you're a small biotech company, um, the biotech industry is not really representative in the ASX. I mean, the healthcare is only representative um, by 14%. So that's about it about the ASX, what they do, and what qualifies a company to be listed on the ASX, and what qualifies for them to be listed within the ASX 200 index. 
So when you buy an ETF or an index fund which tracks the ASX 200, think about it like buying a Christmas hamper. The hamper itself is the ETF or the index fund, where the products within the hamper represent each of the companies. Some products are bigger and more expensive, and some products are smaller and less expensive than others. And this represents the larger companies, and the smaller products are representing of these smaller companies. So you can think about the products within the Christmas hamper to be representative based on their size, which can be accounted for, like market cap, for example. I'm trying to use an analogy. Hopefully, it's a good analogy. Hopefully, it's helping you understand what an index fund and what an ETF is, and how it relates to the actual index. So. What's the main difference then between the ETF and an index fund? This is a very common question that I get asked, and you can go back and listen to my previous episodes about ETFs and index funds. But hopefully, this segment of the podcast will summarise it for you as simply as I possibly can. So, using a Christmas hamper analogy, the ETF is like a Christmas hamper you can buy and sell multiple times per day. So, imagine buying a Christmas hamper at 10 a.m. And then selling it online at 12 p.m., and then again at 2 p.m. So that person then sells it online again, and then it gets sold again and again and again to another person. And during each of the buy-sell moments, its price varies based on the demand and supply of that particular Christmas hamper. An index fund, on the other hand, can be very similar, except again the Christmas hamper represents the index fund. The size of the boxes of the products inside the hamper represent the market cap and the various companies, but an index fund doesn't trade multiple times per day. It only determines its price at the end of the trading day. So that's the difference. So I guess in essence, an ETF is designed for trading just like stocks within the stock market, because let's face it, you can buy Commonwealth Bank shares, CSL shares. Telstra shares buy sell buy sell buy sell buy sell multiple times a day. You could do that with an ETF if you wanted to, but index funds, on the other hand, are not designed for such trading. So hopefully that gives you a bit of clarity around the ASX. Let's go on to discuss the main topic of corporate actions. What are they, and how many you may have benefited from without possibly knowing what a corporate action is? So, what are corporate actions? A corporate action is when a company makes changes which affect its shareholders and bondholders. It's as simple as that. It's usually associated with a publicly listed company. Any corporate action must be approved by the board of directors. Shareholders have a right to vote on some of the issues and have a right to question the corporate action. And you know, to give you an example, if you're a CBA shareholder, you still have a right to ask a question during an annual general meeting, but you may just be voted out、uh, based on the sheer volume of shareholders they may have. So, having a share entitles you to owning a part of that business, and therefore you have a right to ask questions during important meetings in relation to the actions taken by the corporation. Now, sometimes a corporate action requires shareholders to submit a vote by proxy, via postal votes, or attend in person. 
So if you're a shareholder, you have a say in how the company direction goes. That's the critical bit. That's really important for you to understand. It's not as if you saw some random bystander that's witnessing a company grow or fold or whatever it is. You actively need to participate in that company's direction. So in terms of corporate actions, there are two main types, voluntary and mandatory. Voluntary corporate actions include rights issues, stock buybacks, bonus issues, dividend payments, etc. And we'll go into each of these in detail shortly. And mandatory corporate actions include stock splits, company acquisitions, company name changes, and company spin-offs. So how does it occur? How does a corporate action occur? Before a company files for a corporate action, they must release a proxy statement to their shareholders and stakeholders. A proxy statement is basically a statement which provides information to the shareholders about the corporate action so they can make informed decisions. Remember, if you're a shareholder of a company, again, you own a part of their business. So you can have a say in how the business is run, within reason. Some of the information which is provided in a proxy statement includes information about mandatory corporate actions, voluntary corporate actions, new additions to the board of directors, information on executive salaries, information on bonuses, and any declarations made by the company's management to make sure that shareholders are aware of any potential conflicts of interest. Let's use an example. Let's use Amy, who owns a lemon stand business. Now, if you're new to my podcast channel, I use the lemon stand business because I think it's a great business to do. Young kids can do it. Uh, it teaches values of entrepreneurship for children in general. And it's a great simplified example of how a corporation may work. So go back and listen to my previous episodes. If you haven't, I talk about the lemon stand business quite a lot. So Amy owns a lemon stand business. And her yearly profit is quite good at the moment at around $1,000 per annum. She sells freshly squeezed juice to customers, particularly during the holiday season. Initially, the lemon stand business was called Amy's Lemon Stand Business, but she wants to change the name to Pristine Lemon Juice. Her parents own a share of her business. They provided some initial capital to set it up. So let's say they provided 20% of the business is owned by the parents. Now remember, the parents are not part of board of directors. They just own 20% of the business. So if she wants to change the name of her business, she needs to run it past her parents, that is the shareholders, to make sure they're notified. Now, her parents may not be able to object to the changes, but they still need to be notified. This is an example of a mandatory corporate action. It just turns out Amy is the sole director of the company and doesn't have a board of directors to run it past as well, but still needs to inform her shareholders, and in this particular case, her shareholders are her parents. Now, suppose Amy also wants to share some of her profits with her shareholders. That is, she wants to share the profit with her mum and dad. She keeps $500 of the $1,000 of the profit to reinvest into the business, but wants to distribute $250 to her dad and $250 to her mum. This is called a dividend, and this is completely voluntary. Amy doesn't need to do this. She doesn't have to do this. She can keep the profits and doesn't need to share it with her shareholders she can keep the profits and reinvest it back into the business. This is an example of a voluntary corporate action. 
Now, let's go into the various subtypes. So we've gone into the mandatory corporate action, the voluntary corporate action, but I'm going to go into each subtype of voluntary and mandatory corporate action, and we'll try and use examples to understand what they are. So let's go into the various subtypes of voluntary corporate actions to learn more about each of them, and I'll aim to provide examples to highlight each of them. So, voluntary corporate actions. Let's focus on that. We talked about dividend payments. You might have heard in the news about the ANZ Bank deferring its dividend payments due to a 51% slump in their profits due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the headline is slightly misleading. The ANZ company, the bank, still made a massive profit of $1.55 billion for the half year ending March the 31st, but they just didn't make as much profit as expected. So don't cry too much for ANZ. They're still doing better than you and me. So last year they paid out a dividend of 80 cents per share, but this year, due to the pandemic, they think the dividend per share is going to be reduced to 50 cents. So as a result, the bank's board of directors has deferred the decision on whether to pay out the dividend or not. So more news will come in in the second half of the financial year. So... To learn more about dividends and distributions specifically, refer to episode 65 um, and episode 31. I'm not going to go into detail about dividends, but essentially it's a voluntary corporate action. To approve the dividend payment, the board of directors has to approve it. So if Amy had a board of directors and it includes her parents, suppose her company had public shareholders and she wanted to still share her profits, she will need to get approval from her parents to share the profits with her shareholders. This is slightly different to the previous scenario that I just presented, where her parents were just shareholders, but were not part of the board of directors of the company, pristine lemon juice. So that's dividends. The second type of voluntary action is a rights issue. A rights issue is when companies invite its existing shareholders to buy more shares at a specific price. Non-shareholders are not allowed really or authorised to buy these shares. Think of it like a reward for being an existing shareholder of a big company. The existing shareholders are given an opportunity to buy new shares in proportion to their existing holdings. So let's use an example. Back to pristine lemon juice. Amy and a board of directors, her parents, company has six shareholders. Each share is worth a dollar, one shareholder has five shares, and each of the other five shareholders only own one share. So there is a total pool of 10 shares. Amy and her parents decide to do a share rights issue as a corporate action. They decide that they will offer a one-for-one -one share rights issue and offer this at a discounted price of 50 cents per share. Now, the market value of the share is a dollar, but they're prepared to offer a one-to-one -one share rights issue to the existing shareholders at 50 cents per share. So this is how it'll work from now on. The person who holds five shares has the option to buy five more shares at 50 cents per share. This is not an obligation, it's an option. So it's in a sense, a type of option. I've discussed about it previously in the episode called Derivatives, where I talk about call options and put options so if you're interested, go back and listen to it after the episode to get a better understanding. So the shareholders are not obligated to buy Amy's company shares at a discounted value of 50 cents per share. It's just a rights issue. 
So the shareholder exercises this option and buys the five shares under the rights issue. So remember, one shareholder has five shares and the rights issue is a one-for-one -one deal. So the person that has five shares already gets to purchase another five shares. So they've exercised that right. They want to do it. So they now have 10 shares in total. Now remember, each share is worth a dollar in the open market. So essentially, this shareholder has just bought five extra shares at a 50% discount. That is a marvelous situation, provided they had some spare cash to exercise their right, and provided Amy's pristine lemon stand business is going very, very well, which it is, because she's making a profit. Each of the five other shareholders can also exercise their rights issue. But because it's a one-to-one -one ratio, they only get to buy one extra share each. It's still great, still discounted at 50 cents per share, so it's a smart thing to exercise their rights and buy it and hold it, provided they have the money to do so. So why would Pristine Lemon Juice do this? Well, Pristine Lemon Juice needs to fundraise. They need more capital to open up more lemon stands because business is booming. They don't want to borrow money from the banks. They want to keep their shareholders happy. So think about it like this. You go to Coles and you're looking to buy more chocolate. I love chocolate. And when you pick up the Cadbury's Hazelnut, my favourite, someone taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey Dev, how about you buy that thing at 50% off? This is what occurs in the financial world sometimes, and it's quite amazing. Can the shareholders not exercise their option? Yes, they're not obligated to purchase the extra shares at a discounted price, but they can transfer those rights to other shareholders until the date of expected mm. date of purchase. The rights issued have intrinsically been valued, and this can also be transferred. So this seems like a win-win situation, provided the person who wants to buy those and exercise those rights has enough capital to buy it even at that discounted price. So that's why it's really important to have funds laying around if you're an active investor to make sure you take advantage of these rights issues. This seems like too good to be true. Well, it's not without its downsides. You see, now Amy's company has a lot more shares. This is called share dilution. This means the value of each share may come down to compensate for this extra shares on offer. So the total value of a company doesn't actually change. So share rights are great for shareholders. They're great for companies because it can provide much needed cash injection or capital for the company, but it can actually dilute the share pool because you're introducing more shares and as a result can have an effect on the value of the share price. So that's share buybacks. Oh, sorry, not share buybacks. That's rights issue. Now we're going to talk about share buybacks. This is when a company buys its own shares back from shareholders and this usually happens at market value. Why would a company do that? It sounds really strange. Now, again, back to pristine lemon juice. Let's use an example to see why a company like Amy's would want to buy back the shares. Now, after the rights issue that we just discussed about, Amy's company now has six shareholders. The share price is still valued, but now because she's done the rights issue, she's got extra capital, she's invested, business is absolutely booming. We're now five years down the track, right? And now 
Amy's company's share price is worth five hundred dollars per share, because Amy has grown her business significantly. The total number of shares of the company now is twenty. Right, so she's now diluted the shares. Remember, because she's given share rights issues, and the number of shares now has increased to twenty. But over a period of time, the company has just blossomed, and the share price has gone up. So initially, the share price would have gone down because of share dilution, but over time, the company's share price goes up. So Amy has raised capital from issuing rights to shareholders. So. Let's see what happens. She's done really well. She's used that money to expand a lemon juice business, and it's doing really well now. Five years down the track, now her profits have gone up from a thousand dollars per year to ten thousand dollars per year. She's finding it extremely hard to expand the business. She's dominated the market, and over a period of time, five years, she's made a lot of money. She's put all this in the bank account. Here's the problem. Amy has expanded the business nicely. That's great. She's made loads of money, even better. And there is no work for the money, as she is finding it hard to expand the business. So the money is piling up into the bank account. Now, if you have a look at Apple and Warren Buffett, they're sitting on huge amounts of cash. This is kind of Amy's problem. She's got a lot of cash, but her shareholders are now wondering, "Hang on, you're making so much profit." Where's my share of the profit? Where's my dividend? Why isn't my dividend growing, even if your profits are growing? The company has grown over the last five years. Amy's profits have grown. Now it's ten thousand dollars per year. So the shareholders are wondering, well, I want better returns. I want more dividends per share. So in essence, Amy has given up equity in her company to make all this money. And now that money is doing little, sitting in the bank, doing nothing. She's not able to grow her business at a significantly fast rate. So Amy is having to dish out dividends to her shareholders, despite not really growing the company. This is what's known as cost to equity. So the business is paying dividends to the shareholders for the privilege of accessing funds via shareholders, but those funds have no use. So Amy thinks of a brilliant strategy. She says, "Well, she offers a share buyback program to reclaim some of the ownership of the company. Her board of directors approves this. That's her parents. She says, 'Look, I'm happy to buy back the shares at market value, which is five hundred dollars per share. I want to buy back ten shares at a total value of five thousand dollars.' Now, this is not an obligation on the shareholder to sell, but they can and make a profit. So, if I had a share that was Purchased at a dollar, and then subsequently discounted at fifty cents as the rights issue, and now it's gone up to five hundred dollars, and the company wants to buy it off me. I think I might be quite interested in selling those shares now, because you know I'm an active investor,、um, so I want to make money. Now, in reality, I'm not an active investor, and I'm a passive investor, and I don't buy individual stocks. But if you are an active investor, you can see how this could work out in your favour. So Amy recoups her cost to equity and ends up having more equity stake in her own company. So the company has bought some of the shares back from the shareholders. Now CEOs, chairpersons, board of directors often do this to increase the equity stake in the company. So that's share buybacks. Now it's slightly different to share 
purchase program. So NAB recently released a share purchase program, which is slightly different. They don't have to do a prospectus. There's no one-for-one one or there's nothing like that. So it's it's slightly different to share rights and share buybacks. So don't get confused. The share purchase plan is slightly different. Number four, what is a bonus share issue? This is another voluntary um, corporate action. This is when companies issue bonus shares to existing shareholders for free. This usually happens in the ratio setting. So they might have a one-to-one or one-to-two ratio. And companies may use bonus share issues in place of dividends. So Amy decides to issue bonus shares, for example, for her pristine lemon juice business. Now, this is very similar to the rights issue, except in this case, the shareholders don't have to pay. They don't have to pay any money. They just get extra shares for free. But Amy conditions that no dividends will be paid this year for her shareholders. In other words, it's in place of dividends. It's not in excess of dividends. Now, for me, this option is pretty good. Um, I would much rather own more of a company than get cash dividends. And as you know, I don't cash out my dividends. I always reinvest them back into the portfolio. That is one of the steps of the five-step principles that I talked about earlier because this allows over long-term compounding to work. So what's the advantage for Amy for doing this? Why would she ever offer bonus shares? Well, if the company is short on cash and can't dish out cash dividends, the company can issue more bonus shares. And this is cashless and, again, dilutes the share pool, so reduces the value of each share, but it doesn't really have an impact on the company overall market value, nor my own share portfolio, because I still get extra shares. I've still got the total value the same, but each share might actually be valued less. And, in fact, if the share price increases in the future... This is even better because I make more money because I've been given free shares by the company earlier on. So that is bonus share issues. Number five, what is the dividend payment? This is a reward to the shareholders and it's taken out of the profits and given to shareholders. Now I've discussed this extensively again and again and again, so I won't discuss it again. Okay, so that's just dividends. Now we get on to mandatory corporate actions. So mandatory corporate actions are For example, name changes and acquisitions. Now, this is when companies change names or acquire other companies or have mergers with other companies. This brings about material change to the company. A merger is when two companies merge and each company's shareholder maintains a shared interest in the new company. An acquisition is when an acquired company ceases to exist and all shareholders become the acquirer's shareholders. The acquirer's shareholders are still traded in the stock exchange. So that's mandatory corporate action, name changes and acquisitions. So, for example, Amy's Lemon Stand business changed the name of the business to Pristine Lemon Juice. Another type of mandatory corporate action is a stock split and reverse stock split. So we'll go into that a little bit more. Stock splits are basically when the number of shares in the pool is artificially increased based on ratios. Again, very similar to rights issue or bonus issues, but this is a mandatory corporate action and not voluntary corporate action. A company may choose a split ratio of, let's say, 3 to 1. So if a company has 1,000 outstanding shares in the pool, total shares in the market, total pool now becomes 3,000 because it's a 3 to 1 ratio. So why would a company do this? Why would they stock split? Well, a company may do this when their share price just skyrockets to huge amounts. This is all to do with human psychology, and I've talked about this in an episode called Behavioral Finance. It's worthwhile going back and listening to it if you haven't done so already. Human psychology plays a massive deal during times of investing or the share market. Let's use an example. 
Amy's Prestine Lemon Juice Company mm. share price has hit a all-time high of $500 per share. Her business is doing really well, but a share price of $500 is going to be putting off a lot of investors. So Amy devises a great strategy. She wants to artificially reduce her share price, but at the same time, keep her value of her company the same. So she decides to do a stock split. For this purpose, assume Amy's companies has a thousand current pool of shares. So we talked about only six shareholders before, so let's forget about that. Assume for this example, Amy's company has a thousand shares outstanding in the market. She decides a 10 for one stock split. So the total pool now becomes 10,000 shares. This means for every one share held by an investor, now they'll have 10 shares held by that investor. This is completely different to a bonus share issue. Let's see how this pans out. Amy's original share price prior to the stock split was $500 per share. And with 1,000 outstanding shares, her market cap was 500 times 1,000, which is 500,000. After the 10 to 1 share split, the share price now becomes 10 times cheaper. So now Amy's share, so Amy's company's share, sorry, is $50. Her market cap is $50 times 10,000, which is still $500,000. See how the market cap doesn't change, but the value of the share has reduced by 10 times because there's 10 times more shares in the share pool. So the overall value of the company doesn't change. Now, what's the potential advantages of this strategy issued by the company? Well, it reduces the share price to get more investors interested. Let's, you know, imagine yourself investing. Are you going to really invest in a company that's worth $500 a share? Human psychology says you're far more likely to put your money into a company that's worth $50 or even $10 rather than $500 a share. So, this reduces the share price, this strategy, and gets more investors interested. Therefore, if you're interested, you're more likely to buy it and people are going to trade it a lot more. So what you've artificially done is introduced liquidity into the market. We talked about liquidity earlier in the podcast. This is the advantage. That is, there's more of a share pool, greater trading volume, and more trades are possible. A company trading at $50 is going to get far greater liquidity than a company trading at $500. Using a real estate example, houses in the $250,000 to $500,000 price range are likely to change hands quicker and more often than homes worth $50 million. That is liquidity. A stock split creates renewed interest, which means more trading, which means potentially more buyers, which means potentially higher stock prices. So, by doing this, you are artificially reducing the share price, introducing liquidity, and people may trade more. And if they trade more, the price may actually go up. So it actually benefits the company in some respects. Large companies like Apple have done stock splits in the past. So for example, in 2014, their share price hit an all-time high of $650 US. But after the stock split, it came back down to $92.70. Today, roughly today, this is recorded um, on the... Um, uh, 12th of May, it's worth about $289 US. So this is a great strategy even for investors as well as companies. So it went from 650 to 92 bucks, and had you bought or had you held on, it's now worth $289 and overall you would have owned a lot more shares, you made more money. 
Now, a reverse stock split is the opposite. That is, a company's stock prices have tanked, so they're trying to artificially bump up its stock price. Sometimes having a low stock price means it gets delisted from certain stock exchanges. We talked about what are the art, you know, what are the requirements to get listed in the ASX. So, if your stock price is plummeting, you might want to artificially raise it so that you can at least stay in the index. Some stock exchanges have minimum prices. So this gives the perception to investors the stock is not tanking, but it might be. So it might create renewed interest among investors. So that's called a reverse stock split. And lastly, what is a spin-off? This is when companies create new independent companies as spin-offs which have a specific product or service. They see their products or services to be better served by an independent company which the parent company owns all the property of. Okay? So suppose during Amy's business ventures, she develops a new packaging mm. system which would benefit all juice manufacturers. She may patent the process and create a spin-off company in order to just focus on the packaging process. But to do this, she needs more capital and more money. So issuing a spin-off shares is to create more funds. Spin-off shares can also be a rights issue offered to shareholders first or can also be to the general public. So that's about it for this episode. It is a big episode, 44 minutes, probably one of my longest. So let's summarize. We've talked about the role and function of the Australian Stock Exchange. We've talked about indices such as ASX 200. We've talked about index funds. We've talked about ETFs. And thank you very much to Anonymous ASXQ for the question asked. It's a very good one. I'm sure a lot of listeners wondered about the ASX and have learned something from this podcast. We've learned about corporate actions, how investors can benefit, how companies can benefit, how it can be a good thing. We've talked about the biggest benefit of corporate actions being dividends. I love dividends. It's like magic. It's like every quarter you just get free money just for owning shares or owning indexes. So it's a lot of material that we've covered. And I'm pretty sure in your investing life, you may have benefited from a corporate action. And I hope you have. And now, hopefully, this episode understands, makes you understand the value of corporate actions and how it can be really used by companies to create, you know, more capital, create more investor value, especially for an active investor. Thank you very much for listening. Shout out to ASXQ again for their question about the determining factors for getting listed in the Australian Stock Exchange, particularly the ASX 200. And remember, this podcast channel... Um, can be liked on Facebook, Devraga Personal Finance Facebook page. Shout out for all the comments and questions I get every day. I'll try and get back to all of you as quickly as I possibly can. And thank you very much for those that have suggested topics in the past and the future. There's more coming. Remember to share this channel with family and friends. It's available on castbox.fm. It's available on Spotify, on Google Podcast, or directly via devraga.com. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money. And pay attention to corporate actions, especially towards the end of each quarter. And this is when dividends are released or calculated and publicly announced for large Australian companies. Once again, this is Devraga Personal Finance Episode 76. And as always, please make sure you stay safe.